0: I'm Natalie Hutchison from the UN News team, and welcome to this roundup of our most-listened-to tracks for 2018. It's been quite a year for us, with the launch of our new multimedia site across the eight languages that make up UN News. And, of course, we've been bringing you regular editions of our flagship podcast series, The Lit Is On, and other great podcasts focusing on Africa and gender issues, plus our flashback podcast classics from the UN's unique audio archives stretching back more than 70 years. We'll be making some changes in the new year, so stay tuned for that. But for now, here are some of the top stories that you, the listeners, chose based on downloads and plays from our website and our partners at SoundCloud. We'll start in Myanmar, where nearly a million Rohingya refugees forced into Bangladesh after suffering multiple rights abuses tantamount to ethnic cleansing are living in vast camps across the border. In August, veteran human rights investigator Radhika Kumaraswamy, member of the Independent International Fact-Finding Mission on Myanmar, talked to our own Daniel Johnson following the release of their major report based on the testimonies of hundreds of victims. She said that despite her years of experience, she was shocked by the horrific sexual violence perpetrated against the Rohingya. The report found compelling evidence relating to genocide war crimes and crimes against humanity, and attributed primary responsibility to the Myanmar military, who are also known as the Tatmadaw.
1: Well, we have a whole host of evidence. We have testimonies, about 875 of them. We have satellite imagery. We have photos, videos, experts in forensic and the military who have guided us. So it's been quite a whole much, a great deal of evidence has been gathered. We have pointed out in the report that factors relating to genocide were present but the whole issue of genocidal intent we think can only be found in a court of law and therefore what we have suggested is that they be investigated and prosecuted for genocide.
2: And you're asking the Security Council to refer the matter to the International Criminal Court or to set up an ad hoc tribunal to do that. Can we maybe move on to another element of the report that's going to be presented to the Human Rights Council, your preliminary report? You were the former Special Rapporteur on sexual violence against women and the causes of it, and you yourself said in an earlier press conference that you were really staggered by the scale of the sexual violence, we're talking mass rape and other sexual violence.
1: We went to the camps just two weeks or so after the events of August 2017. So. People came in very, very fresh. They showed me their bodies, their scars, their state of mind. And it was really quite uh, horrific in terms of the nature of the sexual violence, from rape to gang rape to mutilation. And I think now people, uh, there are statements that these are all made up. Well, I can say I saw with my own eyes the consequences of some of this violence. So it's not true. These are very, very true stories. Well, you know, for example, one woman said, I was lucky I was raped by only three men. You know, uh, that was the kind of extraordinary violence that was witnessed.
2: The report also notes that approximately half a million Rohingya children fled to Bangladesh and many left after their parents were killed or after being separated from their families. So they are presumably the victims of this violence too. What is going to happen to them? What are your recommendations for their protection?
1: Well, we met a lot of them too. We met the children as well. We must realize that children are always the first that the parents just send without parents. So we come in as orphans, looking at least like orphans until the parents are traced later on. I think what we have to do is to try to push for some kind of education framework for these children in these camps until they find a situation where they can be repatriated. I think that's the key issue that is at the moment rising. But their concerns have to be met.
2: And going back to the events that led to this mass exodus of over 700,000 Rohingya from uh, northern Rakhine state, what was the role of the civilian authorities in all this, and particularly head of state Aung San Suu Kyi, Nobel Peace Prize laureate?
1: Well, let me be very clear. Our report is very clear that the primary responsibility and the effective control of the Tatmadaw that did all this violence was the Tatmadaw.
2: Tatmadaw, the Myanmar Militar, military. The
1: Myanmar military. We have to be very clear, and the civilian authorities do not constitutionally have the power for oversight, and they also just were not part of any planning whatever. What we're saying is that post-August, there are acts and omissions that they did that may have contributed to some of the violence that was taking place. And we feel that Dayman San should have used her moral authority to try and prevent or at least condemn what was going on.
2: So how are you going to prevent this happening again? Many recommendations you target and you name the commander-in-chief. It's been suggested that he might step down immediately. Why is accountability so important in this case?
1: Well, I think accountability means two things. It means justice for the people who are affected. And secondly, it means that it will deter, we hope, future atrocities. That people know that the international community will call them accountable. They play by the rules of war when they go to war. And I think that's one of the clear messages of accountability we want here, because Tatmadaw in other parts of Myanmar, as well as in uh, Rakhine, do not follow the rules of war.
2: And last question to you. In terms of accountability, one of the ways that it might help to improve transparency and accountability is indeed uh, social media. You've noted the rise of hate speech particularly in this exodus and in terms of the vitriol towards the Rohingya minority in Myanmar. Mm -hmm. So uh, you've noted social media platforms. How have you interacted with them? What have they told you? How are they helping promote less hate speech on the web?
1: Well, I think what we're finding is that social media has become a platform for hate speech as well. I think it has taken them by surprise and taken everybody by surprise. And this is not only in Myanmar, it's also... In my country, Sri Lanka, it's been the same in Germany, as the New York Times article two days ago pointed out. So I think the world has to look and re-examine independently as well, find out what we can do to deal with this issue of hate speech through the social media. We have to value freedom of speech, but there must be a way in which we have to deal with this hate speech issue.
0: That was our own Daniel Johnson over in Geneva, speaking with human rights investigator Radhika Kumaraswamy. Next, we'll go to the UN's huge project launched this year to make sustainable development a reality. Deputy Secretary General Amina Mohamed told us in May that reform of the way the UN goes about development will allow the world body to transform a cacophony into a symphony. Matt Wells spoke to Ms. Mohammed ahead of the adoption of the formal reform package and began by asking her why the development system needed reform in the first place.
3: Well, it it needs it because we've got this amazing new framework that we all agreed in 2015, the the 2030 agenda. And that's the 17 goals, uh, but it includes the climate agenda. So a huge lift. um, And what you need from the UN system is a better response um, that is ramped up beyond the MDGs. The MDGs had a certain response. What we need for the SDGs is so much bigger. Um, And for that, the UN needs to um, reposition itself needs to get better skill sets. We need to make sure people at the country level are able to help countries and people um, achieve those aspirations that we have in the framework.
4: And what tangible difference do you hope that this reform is going to make to the quality of people's lives around the world and the effectiveness of the UN in terms of delivering?
3: Well, effectiveness of the UN is going to be amazing, because what we will have is a much more independent and impartial leader in our multilateral system at the country level. Being able to pull a team together, what I would say is that, In previous times we've sort of had a conductor that through no fault of their own is conducting a cacophony left hand does not know what the right hand is doing and today we have an opportunity to make a symphony for the SDGs that's really the difference on the ground Um, and I think that that for us means that we will deliver more effectively at scale whole programs so we won't just be talking about um, uh, vaccinations um, uh, for, for children, but we're talking about a health system that will continuously provide the whole set of immunization that you need, um, the doctors and the nurses, and really uh, sustainability in it, not just a program, but um, beyond the program what happens.
4: Is this reform going to enable the UN to make better or different guarantees about how it can support countries? Uh, and everybody else who's working in the whole sustainable development field?
3: Yes, we'll be demanding much more in terms of results and visibility of it. And I think here everybody will be able to demand of the UN at the country level, but also of the SG when he reports annually, um, the results. Exactly what did you get for the money we invested in development? Um, And I think this is exciting because it is bringing on new partners, but it's demanding more of us, and and why not? That's what we work for.
4: Is this about kind of fundamentally helping the poorest of the poor? Or or do you hope this is going to register a difference across the whole social spectrum, across the world.
3: It's about leaving no one behind. And we have to define country by country who those no ones are and target our investments on them and make sure that they are part of this development and that um, there's so many root causes that we speak about that invariably get us a reaction that is conflict, that is a humanitarian crisis, that is a a lack of uh, respect for human rights doesn't ever happen again. We have to always work to zero. Our commodities hope, and that's what we're going to do in terms of trying to implement the development agenda.
0: That was Matt Wells speaking with the UN's Amina Mohamed on what the UN reform plan means for putting the SDGs, one of our favorite acronyms, into action. Now let's jump to what our UN chief, Antonio Guterres, has called the defining issue of our time. Back in 2015, when the Paris Climate Agreement was signed, almost all nations agreed to come together to limit global warming to below 2 degrees Celsius, ideally to keep it below 1.5 degrees. In October, a watershed report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, calculated the effects of 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius rises in global temperatures. Connor Lennon reported on the risks outlined by some of the scientists and authors of the report.
4: What difference does half a degree make? Back when the Paris Climate Agreement was signed by world leaders in 2015, there wasn't a clear answer to that question. So the scientists of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, which provides governments with scientific, objective information, was tasked with coming up with one. And on Monday, at a press conference in Incheon, South Korea, it was released.
3: We were invited to prepare this report three years ago because there was not enough knowledge on the subtle differences between global warming of 1.5 and 2 degrees. And I'm impressed by the amount of new knowledge, 6,000 publications assessed in the report, and what comes out is a clear benefit in limiting warming to 1.5 compared to 2 degrees to avoid multiple risks, and I want to stress risks associated, for instance, with heat waves, Heavy rainfall events, drought in many regions.
4: Climate scientist and co-chair of the report, Valérie Masson-Delmotte, on the mammoth task accomplished by the IPCC. The organisation was keen to highlight the benefits of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees and of creating economies that benefit all without harming the environment. Here is Hosung Lee, the chair of the IPCC, and co-chair of the report, Priyadashi Shukla. Climate change is
5: occurring already and affecting people, ecosystems, and livelihood all around the world. Every degree of warming matters, and there's tremendous benefit in limiting it to a 1.5 degrees
2: Celsius in terms of eradicating poverty as well as achieving sustainable development.
5: The report gets into the very exhaustive list of the, the issues If I have to say one, is that how are we going to come out of fossil fuels? This is a question which is often asked of the various policies of mitigation of climate change. This report is addressing this issue, so that the question is not about the mitigation of the emissions, but the question is about how would living on this planet becomes more sustainable, and that sustainable Development could become an anchor
4: for the climate change as opposed to climate change is kind of a hindrance to sustainable development. So how do we make this happen? The message that came out today is that if we carry on as usual, it isn't going to happen. In fact, there's a strong likelihood we'll overshoot two degrees. Pateri Talas, Secretary-General of the World Meteorological Organization, shared his concern about the consequences, particularly for the regions on the front line of climate change.
5: There's extreme urgency and uh, so far the progress hasn't been good enough that we would move towards uh, 1.5 or 2 degrees targets. So there's there's a clearly a need for much higher ambition level to reach even 2 degrees uh, targets. And one of the major issues is that uh, there would be 420 million people less suffering because of climate change if we would uh, be able to limit the, the warming to 1.5 degree level and we have certain areas in the world which are extremely sensitive It's uh, the small island states, uh, Mediterranean region and also sub-Saharan Africa which are already suffering and will suffer the most in the future.
4: But despite these stark warnings, the team was at pains to lay out a roadmap for avoiding runaway warming not just for governments, but for all of us. Here's climate scientists and co-chair of the report, Deborah Roberts.
1: The report calls out four big transitions that the world needs to go through in terms of energy, land, cities, and industry. That's a really empowering message because it means each one of us as individuals can make choices about the energy we use to move through our lives, about dietary choices that impact on land use. It tells us that we can change the way we interact with the world's cities through the transport we choose to go to work and to play. It also talks to us that we have power as consumers in terms of directing where industry goes and the kind of goods it manufactures. So overall, a real call to action.
4: And now it's over to the countries to digest the contents of the report and consider their responses. The report will be presented to governments at the upcoming UN Climate Change Conference, which takes place in Poland this December.
0: That was U.N. News' Conor Lennon giving us the rundown on the effects of climate change by science experts and report authors. And well, we cannot forget the memory of renowned figure Kofi Annan, who served as the U.N. Secretary General for 10 years and left a legacy with his passing in August. The U.N.'s top official in Geneva and a friend of nearly 40 years, Michael Mueller, explained the former Secretary General's passing has deprived us of one of the world's last big moral voices. Here, Mr. Mueller describes how the former Secretary General's humanity infused everything that he did, every concern that he had, and every decision that he took. Michael Mueller there, a longtime friend to former UN chief and renowned figure Kofi Annan, and the top UN official in Geneva, speaking with Michele Zakeo of UN News.
5: He was an extraordinary human being with an absolutely amazing balance. I would call him zen an infallible political nose. Uh, absolutely extraordinary human qualities of compassion um, and always caring for um, the other, particularly for those uh, less uh, lucky than the rest of us, and just uh, exuded a warmth and a, a presence and a intelligence um, that was very rare. He was one of the last big moral voices of our world that we have now lost, which particularly at this time of our history is uh, is a problem.
2: Kofi Annan guided the
5: United Nations through uh, times of momentous change. I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit on his legacy. What were his achievements in your mind? The list is enormous. He changed the United Nations. He was the United Nations um, during the years that he was secretary-general. But there are so many uh, elements and the themes and the big items that he uh, that he was behind and he changed um, uh, from making sure that uh, HIV-AIDS patients could get affordable medicine, from mainstreaming human rights into the work of everything the United uh, Nations is doing, from the responsibility to protect, from pushing us more into being more preventive, from pushing for the millennium development goals and from making the system work much better together in achieving those developments and actually reaching some extraordinary uh, solutions uh, for people around the world. Um, the list is endless. He really reshaped the United Nations um, and reshaped many people's opinion of the United Nations because we really scaled up our ability to help.
4: We know a lot about uh, Kofi
5: Annan, the Secretary General. Then, after he was Secretary General, he continued to have a very
4: important role, didn't he?
5: Well, as you know, his main foundation is the Kofi Annan Foundation through which he undertook quite a lot of very quiet diplomacy but also not so quiet. For example, one of his big, the big examples was his help to Kenya in the aftermath of the election some years ago when there was a lot of, of violence and several hundred people died. Uh, he helped them get back from the brink. He helped them get a new constitution. And he has helped lots of countries, most of which we don't know about, in coming up with solutions to their internal crisis. He was also a very proud and very prominent son of Africa and cared a lot about the African continent. Uh, so he did quite a lot. He had uh, several um, foundations as well that he headed, the African Progress Panel, Agra for agriculture in Africa. Uh, so he did a lot for Africa. He was both very helpful, but also very critical, constructively critical. And if any continent will miss him more than others, it certainly will be Africa.
4: You must have lots of stories about uh, Kofi Annan. Is there one that sticks out in your mind now?
5: It's been going around my head uh, ever since I got the news this morning. There are so many stories. And his impact on me personally has been enormous. I've known him for almost 40 years. I mean, some of the things that come to mind is that he was an incredible teacher. That I, I certainly, and not only me, but many of my generation, I've, I've learned a lot from him. Just by following him and watching him and seeing him work. I always remember that throughout the years, particularly when I worked with him in, uh, in his cabinet, that um, he had a very inclusive management style. He would listen to advice from everybody and then he would make his own counsel. And so often I saw him sitting with his senior advisors who would advise one thing and he would chew a little bit on it and then he would decide to do something completely different. And in actually more than 90% of the cases he would be right. I learned a lot from that.
0: This concludes our roundup of UN News' most listened to audio of 2018, bringing this final podcast of the year to a close. From our team at UN headquarters in New York, a Happy New Year. And as we like to say when the day is done, and appropriately, as the curtain falls on the year 2018, the lid is on. I'm Natalie Hutchison. Thanks for listening.